they're always looking for the superficial diversity of skin colour. They want more brown faces that think like them. And because I was a brown face that didn't think like them, they ignored their own ideology. This whole idea that we need to be listening to more ethnic minority voices. Okay, well, I'm an ethnic minority. I have a voice. I'm trying to give it to you, but you're not listening to it. So you're a hypocrite. Today, I sit down with Calvin Robinson, a UK-based Anglican deacon and political commentator. He was barred from becoming a deacon in the Church of England, he believes, because of his conservative political views and opposition to critical race theory. The church put out a report stating that the church itself is institutionally racist. How has woke ideology gained a foothold in Christian churches? And what is the significance of Boris Johnson's recent resignation? This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Calvin Robinson, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Yeah, and the pleasure is mine. Thank you so much for the invitation. Well, for starters, I have to say congratulations on your becoming a deacon. And it was, it was not necessarily something that was a sure thing at one point. No, no, it's been a very long, challenging journey, but these things often are. I think, you know, it's all part of the big plan and it always looks better or easier in, in retrospect than it does in the moment. Well, so, you know, you're now officially an ordained minister of a church that many people I don't think are even aware of, probably even in the UK, never mind in the US. So maybe briefly tell me that uh, what that is and then we're going to look into your journey to get there. Yeah, sure. So I'm a member of uh, the Anglican Church, uh, and a lot of people just think that Anglicanism is synonymous with the Church of England. Of course, it's not. The Church of England is one part of the Anglican Church. Um, and the Anglican tradition is a global tradition that, of course, started in England, hence Anglican, um, coming from the Ang Angles. Um, and the expression of church that I'm a part of is called the Free Church of England, which actually split from the C of E in 1844. But it's part of a wider global movement called GAFCON, uh, which really and truly got going in 2008 when the Jerusalem Declaration was signed. And this was a declaration of very sound Orthodox Anglicans that saw that the church was going too woke, too liberal, too progressive on issues and moving away from the Bible. And they said, hey, wait a minute, we want to stick to the truth. And uh, they set up their own organization, essentially, around a group of conferences that happen uh, to, to kind of reaffirm the faith. Well, so not too recently, you were still studying at Oxford to become a minister. And, you know, why don't we just start with, you know, your journey to get there? Because um, I'll, I'll just say this, right? From what I've seen of you, you have an unbelievable ability to connect with people. And clearly, you're very, very committed to your faith. So this would strike me as kind of like an ideal person to, to join a, you know, an official church, especially at a time when a church is in decline, like the, like the Church of England. Um, so, uh, but how, how did you get, get there? This is, this is an unusual path you've taken. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I mean, first of all, I was working in industry. I was living a good life, the fast life, uh, making money and just having a good time uh, or a nice time, not necessarily a good time. And there is a difference. And I want to, I reached a point in my life where I wanted to kind of feel more fulfilled and, and give something back. I didn't want to live a, an entirely superficial life anymore. And that I didn't realize at the time was the start of my calling. I was, I was being nudged in a different direction. And I entered teaching uh, almost accidentally 
because the area that I was in was computer science and, and, and you know, programming and, and web design and app development. And we didn't have enough talent in the UK. We really didn't, we couldn't find the people to do the work we wanted. And I'm a patriot. I didn't believe in outsourcing work to Eastern Asia and Europe. And I thought, why, why, where's the British talent? And I thought, you know, either arrogantly or naively that I could make a difference in teaching people computer science. So I entered teaching. And then this is when I realized that this is the start of my vocation because teaching is one element of the priestly ministry. Of course, there's the pastoral side, which also comes with teaching, also comes with priestly ministry. But after a number of years in teaching, I realized that what we were doing was good work, but it wasn't all of the work. And I needed to be involved in administering the sacraments. And I needed to be involved in not just helping young people get good grades, but helping helping them good, be good Christians and sending them out into the world as good people. Uh, the character element is what I thought was missing. And it, it, essentially that nudged me further down my vocation into um, training for ordained ministry. Now I, I applied, I went through the, the process. I said, I feel like I'm being called to ordained ministry and the, the established church said, we also think that you are being called. Uh, let's send you to Oxford. Let's spend 20 to 30,000 pounds on training you up and give you some good formation. Uh, and then we get to, towards the end of that training, a couple of years in Oxford, uh, and at the end you're usually given a parish to go and work in as a curate or an assistant priest. And this is when I entered my first stumbling block. This is when I experienced my first hurdle, when the bishops essentially said that they don't think there is a place for someone like me. And I, I tried to push on this a little bit because obviously in the UK, I have a little bit of a media profile. I do commentary, political commentating um, on, on GB News and, and talk radio. And I write for The Telegraph and, and, the, and The Times and The Daily Mail and such. So I, my opinion is out there in the public space, but it's always rooted in my faith. It's always conservative. And I think the two things are very much aligned. However, the hierarchy within the church is very liberal. And they, they seem to think that their politics is the only way to be a Christian. And I think that politics and the faith are two different things that can be aligned, but aren't always. Anyway, it, what it came down to was that they said, look, there will be too many complaints because of your public profile and the things that you say uh, and how you say them. And I like to think I'm quite a, you know, amenable, peaceable guy. And I don't think I'm that uh, controversial. But anyway, I said, OK, well, fair enough. Let me see some of the complaints against me and I'll pray on them. I'll discern on how to do better because I'm not out here to offend. I'm really not. I'm not a shock jock. I'm out here to proclaim the truth as I see it. And I, I find the truth rooted in my faith. Um, and they said, well, we can't show you the complaints. I said, OK, well, fair enough. I did. Over here, we have a Freedom of Information Act. And I, I did a request called a subject access request, which meant that I'm able to see by law any document they have with my details on it. So any email, any text message mentioning my name or talking about me. And so I got a whole pack of information from the bishops in the Church of England, uh, and it detailed that they'd received less than a handful of complaints about me, actually. And I, first of all, Jan, I thought that was quite uh, underwhelming. Um, I've obviously not been as controversial as, as I thought. But also that there were a lot, a lot of communications about me from the bishops themselves. And these dated all the way back to before they even sent me to training. Suggest, saying things such as Calvin doesn't believe that racism is institutional in this country. Uh, we should keep an eye on his ordination process. Therefore, implying that he doesn't align with our politics. Do we really want to ordain him? And that was the start of the snowball.
Well, that's, I mean, absolutely fascinating because, you know, essentially, if I'm getting this right, and, and I recall that, you know, you have said that in a recent conversation with, uh, with a highly placed person in the church, you were also given this message that, that you, you, you need to believe that the church is institutionally racist. That's, that's the correct position to take. Yeah, so on this, on this particular topic, and, and there were many political topics they disagreed with me on, but on the topic of race, the church put out a report um, stating that the church itself is institutionally racist. Now, I challenged this report because it was full of critical race theory, and I know that that's a divisive, toxic ideology that we shouldn't be pushing on the general populace, never mind on the faithful. Um, and I thought there were other ways of addressing race relations. And of course, you know, because of the whole Black Lives Movement Matter movement, we have to address it in some way. But to be self-flagellating and taking on board positive discrimination is not the way to do it. You know, it was full of affirmative action. This report from the church was full of racial quotas. You know, things like uh, we can we can provide uh, these stats, but things like the church needs to have a shortlist of 30 percent ethnic minorities for every leadership position available in the church. Now, the UK has an ethnic minority quota of about 12 to 14 percent. It's a predominantly white country. And of that 12 to 14 percent, half of those are Muslims, right? And so that leaves us with 7 percent of the population being ethnic minority and potentially able to take a role in the church. So I don't know where they, where they expect to get 30 percent for every leadership position from, especially if it's outside of London, where the demographics are much, much lower. So that's just one example of the woke nonsense that was in the report. So I challenged it and said, look, there are other ways of looking at these issues. Maybe we can have a conversation. They didn't appreciate it. I said, look, I don't think we, could, we can start from a position of saying the church is institutionally racist. I said, look, there are many, many instances of individual racism, and they, of course, need to be dealt with uh, seriously. But when you say that they all, the whole institution is racist, first of all, you're shifting blame from those individuals so they get away with it. But secondly, you're painting all of us as racist, and I don't think that's the case. Um, so I, I think it's inappropriate. And, you know, an influential bishop said to me, but Calvin, I can tell you as a white woman, the church is racist. And that leads me to the assumption that I, I just there's no common ground there. That's very difficult to engage with when, when a person won't debate with you on evidence or statistics or look at the demographical data. Uh, you know, in this country, we've had uh, an independent report uh, that the government has uh, published recently that shows that, you know, it looks into demographics and, and social um, enigmas and looks at racial um disparities and tries to find if the cause is racism or if it's a wider issue. And in this country, actually, it's mostly down to class, most of the disparities that we have in our society. Sometimes race does play a part. It's usually not the whole picture. And when we when we play when we blame racism, we're not seeing the whole picture. And I think that's a disappointment because we want to we all want to live in a better society. So we have to address the whole issue holistically. Anyway, I put all this forward and they said, well that you know, we see the church as institutionally racist. And then they released another report that said, actually, the country is institutionally racist. So it's not enough to say that the church is institutionally racist. It's the entire country. I mean, that's just a joke, isn't it? That just every part of our society is somehow racist and, and working actively working against ethnic minorities. When we have equality under the law, if someone is being discriminated against, they have means to, to of, of redress. They can take people to court. They can sue them. Um, so it's clearly not. And we've got the Equalities Act. We've got a whole host of defensive measures in our laws. Uh, and I'm just like, this is not realistic. And of course, it came down to the fact that we weren't going to see eye to eye on these political issues, even though, you know, 
They never drew any attention to my faith. They never said, you know, you're not faithful enough, you're not Christian enough, your theology is wrong, you know, you're heretical on these issues, because I don't think they would have any legs to stand on. It was always the issue they, they had with me was my politics. It wasn't the same as theirs. And I think if you want a truly broad church, you should have diversity of thought and opinion, diversity of politics. And that's the one diversity that they're never chasing after. They're always looking for the superficial diversity of skin color. They want more brown faces that think like them. And because I was a brown face that didn't think like them, they ignored their own ideology. This whole idea that we need to be listening to more ethnic minority voices. Okay, well, I'm an ethnic minority. I have a voice. I'm trying to give it to you, but you're not listening to it. So you're a hypocrite. Uh, and that's where we left off, really. Of course, I didn't put it in that way. I tried to be as charitable as I could. Um, but they made it known that there wasn't room for someone like me in their organization. And I do think it was part of the plan. Yeah. And I think, you know, I was, I've ended up where I was supposed to, because if I was in that institution and I don't want to go on about it too much because it's negative and I'm trying to move past that, but I would have been battling every day against wokeism, against people telling me that I'm, I'm oppressed because I'm brown. I'm, I'm a victim and I'm not a victim. I'm not oppressed. And I don't want people telling me that every day. So where I'm now, I'm able to just get on with my ministry. And, and that means, you know, to, that means to me preaching the gospel. It doesn't mean talking about climate change, Brexit or Black Lives Matter. First of all, what strikes me is when you saw that, uh, you know, this, this language of institutional racism, you probably got a hint that critical race theory is involved in this, in this view. And of course, in critical race theory, that's the a priori assumption. It's not even like a, it's, 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 it's not a conclusion. It's a, it's a basic supposition, right? Yeah, it's the starting point. And that's the problem. Because when you're starting from a position that I don't recognize, how can we find common ground? I don't know where to go from there. I mean, I'm happy to talk about lived experiences, for example, but we can't put all the weight on the lived experience because a lived experience, I mean, it's a stupid term for an anecdote. And we know that anecdotes are important, but they're not the whole picture. And they're certainly not the most important data. Uh, so, and, and also, how do you weight one anecdote over another? When I'm giving my anecdote, and I've experienced a lot of racism in my, in my life, I'm never saying that racism isn't an issue. I've experienced it firsthand, and I've seen it in my family too. Um, but when I'm saying that my lived experience isn't that I is, is that I'm not oppressed, I'm not a victim, despite the racism that I've experienced, and that actually I'm, I feel quite successful, quite privileged to use their terminology. And I honestly believe that if you get, keep your head down, work hard enough, you can achieve anything you want in the West, because we're fortunate enough to we don't live in a meritocracy yet, but we're heading towards that. That's the direction we're working towards. And most of us in the UK, Canada, Australia and and North America as a whole, most of us in the established West believe in equality of opportunity, believe in the power of the individual and individual responsibility along with that. And when you take all that away, strip all that away and say, actually, you're not an individual, you're no more than the color of your skin. That's a step backwards, in my opinion. Well, and something I really wanted to get your opinion on, um, you know, a number, some more religious people that I've spoken to describe, um, you know, adherence to critical race theory and wokeism as a broader term, as a kind of secular religion. Um, and others uh, that are more secular actually call it an actual religion. And so I don't know how, what you think about this, because, but it's, it's, it's a, an interesting case because you know, you're obviously trying to live your religion. So how, uh, how does this fit into, into you know, an existing religious life? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I would say in my religion, in Christianity, we, we refer to the Bible as our primary source. 
and and we take that as 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 given. So, for example, it would say in Galatians, Paul would say that there is neither Jew nor Greek. It's a very common phrase, I know, but it's important because it says that our race or ethnicity doesn't matter because we're all one. And on identity, it would say that our identity is actually rooted in Christ, not in our individual demographics. And again, critical race theory is the opposite of that. It's saying, no, your first identity is your skin color, and then everything else comes after that. So it, it's a religion that is the antithesis of the religion that we're supposed to be subscribing to. But it's not just critical race theory. The religion is wokeness. So within the established church, it's not just critical race theory that's taken hold of them. You know, there's the whole, the LGBTQ++++ II, whatever movement, the alphabet movement has taken hold too. Because we've got, you know, people literally undermining scripture, not just not just ignoring it, but, but reversing it in order to squeeze in their own political views. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that... Um, that there are different lifestyles that people cannot choose to live. That's up to each individual. But what I'm saying is, if you call yourself a Christian, the Bible gives you the way. So, for example, within the established church, and I'm not just talking about the Church of England, I'm talking about the uh, the, the church, uh, the um, Episcopal Church in America too. Homosexual marriage is something that they are really, really pushing for. And again, I'm not commenting on homosexuality. I'm not commenting on how other people live their lives. But I'm saying marriage as a Christian sacrament is between one man and one woman. That's very clear in the scripture. And it's for the purposes of procreation and unity as one couple under God. Now, you can you can do whatever you like in your lifestyle, live your life however you like. I'm not renouncing anyone, but I'm saying that you can't. what you can't do is rewrite what is in the book. So you can't say, actually, marriage now is, actually, is, is, is also between two men or two women. Like, find another word for that. Find another way of looking at that if you need to. But... Whatever you're doing, that's not the Christian religion. That's another religion. That's wokeness. And this is, this is the problem. In every aspect of our lives, wokeness is kind of taking a grasp. And when it becomes the new religion, people ignore the old one. And it's replacing the old one. And I think it's more damaging because we're teaching, you know, right now in the UK, it's gone past the church. It's in every aspect of our lives. We're teaching young kids in schools that this is, this is something that they should know about from a very, very early age. Um, in the UK, I used to be, you know, I spoke about I used to be a teacher. Sex education is something we used to teach in high school. Now that's been pushed all the way down into junior school because people felt it was important that young kids knew about different lifestyles. For example, that families aren't just one man and one woman, but families could also be two men. Now, I get that there's an argument for that, but then to push that that sex education, call it relationship and sex education, and push it down from... 15 16 years old all the way down to four five six years old is not it's no longer age appropriate and the, what we've seen as a result of that is i know I'm, I'm on a tangent here but what we've seen as a result of that is that we are teaching five-year-olds about masturbation we're teaching five-year-olds about bdsm we're teaching these young children about things that they should have no idea about well sometimes ever but at least until they're old enough and we have age-appropriate rules in every other area of life, but in education they've been eroded because of this new religion of wokeness, because it's inclusive, it's diverse, and that's all that matters. You know, you're, you're describing wokeness as a kind of a religion that's replacing potentially, you know, the one that, that you've committed yourself to, um, or at least the church you were originally committed to. I'm, I'm curious how much feedback you've gotten from uh, ministers and preachers and people in other Christian denominations or perhaps in other religions as well saying, hey, we're seeing something similar. 
That is a very good question. That's a key question. So once my story broke, uh, uh, first of all, that I'd been blocked in the C of E and then I'd found somewhere else to go. I had so many responses from from the laity, you know, people in the pews, but also from vicars, priests and, and, and other clergymen who said, this is this is happening here. This is happening in our church. This is happening all over. And the, the saddest thing was that most people did not feel comfortable speaking out. So priests would say, I can't say anything because I'll be starved out. You know, the, the church will, they're, they're reliant on their stipend. And then we'd have clergymen who say things like, well, there's nothing we can do because it's our priest who's preaching about climate change more than he's preaching about Jesus Christ. We think it's inappropriate, but what can we do? Or we've got priests saying, yeah, my bishop is putting pressure on me to do the latest diversity and equality training, um, which is full of critical race theory. And we don't have a problem with race in our church or you know, there's a new report that's been put out by the church that says we need to look for monuments and statues that could be potentially offensive. And here's a guide on how to remove them. This is literally erasing our history. We don't want any part in this. Um, I've had so many positive and quite sad responses from people up and down the country. I had, you know, initially I had priests saying, you know, come and train here, come and be our assistant priest. But, but what was interesting about that was none of the bishops got in touch. Not one bishop got in touch to say, you know, we'd like to ordain you or we we do see the problem here. They've been very quiet. And I think the issue there is that there's a, a group think amongst the bishops, but the clergy and the laity are very diverse. And I think actually probably more conservative than liberal, especially in, in the in the pews. The vast majority of people in the country are conservative, hence why we've had a conservative government for the last couple of decades. Fascinating. Well, actually, let, let's talk about this because this is actually very timely, right? Um, the British Prime Minister or the UK Prime Minister is announced that he's resigning, although he's, you know, basically staying in place for a while, for, for a few months yet. And, um, you know, I noticed that you have some commentary about, you know, the, the character or the characteristics that you'd like to see of a future Premier. Before we go there, or, or Prime Minister, before we go there, um, what, what do you think happened? Well, it's been painted as a moral dilemma. So there was, for those that don't know, there was a, a member of parliament who groped a couple of men in a gentleman's club and it wasn't dealt with swiftly or appropriately. And this member of parliament um, got away with it uh, for, pol for political reasons. The, the prime minister needed his support. He was a deputy chief whip, so he was responsible for getting, running the troops, but also he, the prime minister needed that number in a vote. It was all very um, seedy and scandalous. But people are claiming that this is, you know, they're on some moral high ground and this is just reprehensible. We have to get rid of him. It's not because of that at all. So Boris Johnson is many, many things, but he's never been accused of being a moral chap. He's never, you know, the, all these righteous people have supported him for years. Uh, and suddenly they, they, they find that he doesn't have a moral compass. You know, this is the chap that he's on his third marriage he's got in fact we don't even know how many kids our prime minister has how many children he has that's you know that's how much of a, a, a an adulterer or a, or a, a playboy he is what it, whichever terminology you, you want to use he's a lad right um this is the chap that you know some people will say he's politically incorrect some people will call him racist from the jokes and, and the language that he uses so wherever you fall on the political spectrum whatever you say about him i don't think you would ever call him moral what we've actually seen is a sustained campaign against him by several different parties that have ha happened to converge 
I think accidentally, I don't think they're clever enough to be uh, coordinated. But first of all, there's the mainstream media over here who really, really do not want him in place. And they never have. Um, we have a lefty liberal media, much as you, much, much the same as you guys. Um, they've campaigned against him heavily. One of the issues they've been talking about for weeks and months is this thing called party gates, that during the lockdowns, the prime minister... Uh, he didn't really have a party, but he entered a room where people gave him a slice of cake for his birthday. This was like after a meeting or before a meeting or something. It was the most boring party you can ever imagine in a workplace. I don't, I don't even know if there was alcohol involved, but they've been holding that over him for the longest time. The mainstream media using that as a stick to beat him with, but anything they can find to shut him down. And then on the other camp, you've got the Ramonas. And when I say Ramonas, I mean people who voted for Remain that haven't managed to get over it. So we've got people that want to, wanted to remain in the European Union and we've got people that would like to rejoin the European Union. And of course, Boris Johnson is the, the fellow that got Brexit done after you know, many attempts to subvert democracy. Many, many people within the Houses of Parliament wanted to cancel the results of the referendum or, and or ignore them. Even one of our biggest democratic mandates in our history. Anyway, they didn't like the results, so they wanted to overturn it. Uh, so there's a Ramon camp, a Remain camp going after him too. And then thirdly, there is the evil genius Dominic Cummings, a, a guy that I actually have a lot of respect for because he's the best campaigner we've ever seen. Um, he, he was the campaigner behind uh, Vote Leave in, during the Brexit referendum. He was the campaigner that got Boris Johnson elected in 2019. He runs campaigns like no one else. However, he shouldn't necessarily be involved in government. You know, campaigning and governing are two very different things. He's not the most empathetic or compassionate person. He, I think he sees people as numbers on a spreadsheet. He's a massively big picture. But the problem is he was involved in government and he was probably the most ins uh, influential person around Boris Johnson for a long while until Boris Johnson got married. And again, Carrie Simmons took over that position. There was a bit of a battle. Anyway, Dominic Cummings lost that battle got unceremoniously booted out of number 10 and he's been holding a grudge and he's been saying he will get revenge on the prime minister quite publicly you know none of this is uh, um, implied and this is his revenge he's been leaking things he's been maneuvering so we've got dominic cummings we've got the remain camp and we've got the mainstream media all of them have been on boris johnson's case from day one and they've just happened to have a stroke of luck in that the tide has turned against him finally but even that you know he wasn't willing to resign straight away he, most of his cabinet resigned he still said no i'm not going anywhere what his his best friend went in to say look you've got to go he said no you're going instead fired him um and now he said he will resign i don't think he has actually technically resigned because he, he said he will stay until there is a replacement leader for the party which we don't expect to take place until september uh, because the, the party conference is early october so he could potentially be working in his head to turn things around by September. You know, he could be like, you know, if I cut taxes, if I cut immigration, do the things that people have been begging for for years, uh, finally, people might be happy and, and forget about all this hoo-ha and let me stay in place. Who knows? But he, he, he is the sort of person that would have to be dragged out kicking and screaming. You mentioned that he might have this, uh, you know, plan to basically stay in place uh, despite having resigned, despite everything, and of course all the pressure. But you, you did propose, and I thought they were very interesting, and I saw they got a ton of traction too. Um, some, some characteristics of what uh, a leader might have, and I mean, maybe this is something that that uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson could actually, you know, benefit from. Absolutely, I'm, I'm shocked that 
this hasn't been done so far. So I just talked about the issues that I hear people talking about. That are, you know, I, on GB News, we have this saying that we answer, we ask the questions that people want answers to. And for the most part, people on my Twitter are asking similar questions to what they're tweeting in to the shows. And that is, how can we cut illegal immigration? We have far too much immigration. We need to control our borders. Why are we not promoting the family? Why are we not protecting British values? Um, all of these issues are very just small C conservative. And it, when you have a conservative government, you'd expect them to, to be doing some things conservative at least. Uh, what I did find interesting though from my wish list of, uh, of uh, policies was that promote the family was the most controversial one among them. And I had some quite, you know, some fairly right wing views in my list, but promoting the family is the one that caused the most backlash. Because people say, but what family? What type of family? What do you mean by promote the family? As if it's a bad thing. How have we got to a point in, in, in the West where it's controversial to say that we should be promoting the family? And I didn't even go into any detail. So anything else is implied on the person reading it. It's inferred, rather, by whoever's reading it at the time. You know, this I've come to this uh, with many, many guests over the years now that have been on the show, is this idea, at least in the U.S., being in a complete family unit um, is one of the best indicators of success. It's the one that comes out amidst all the other variables almost every time. Left and right think tanks agree on this. This is it's it's, it's, it's foundational and very valuable to actually having a you know quote unquote successful life. It's demonstrable, absolutely. Um, the Center for Social Justice did a report out here that showed that if your family breaks down before you reach the age of 18, so if you're a child and you lose one of your parents from your family uh, through separation or divorce, you are twice as likely to fail in school, twice as likely to end up homeless, and more than twice as likely to end up in prison, and also twice as likely to end up on drugs. So your life chances diminish by half by, your, by losing one of your parents. By your family halving, your life chances halve. That's how serious it is. But... We've, we've become so woke that just to say promote the family has become a bad thing because people th think that you're saying that there's only one type of family or that you're against single parents. And it's like, no, what we're saying is, or what I'm saying is, there is an ideal, a strong male role model, a strong female role model. That is ideal. But I'm not saying that two men or two women can't raise a family. I'm not arguing for or against that, actually. That's up to other people to, to make that case. But I'm also saying that an ideal isn't going to happen for everyone. My mother was a single parent. She didn't choose that. That's just what happened. Circumstances, um, you know, dictated that. But I'm not saying I'm not talking against single parents. I'm saying it's better for kids if they have two parents. And surely we should strive towards that, and we should help support people so that that can be the case. And you know, some countries in Europe manage to do this very well. Uh, you get uh, extra family support the more children you have, or, you know, you get tax breaks if you're a married couple, things that we used to do here in the UK, and we've, we've stopped doing them because the moment you say you are for two-parent families, people assume you're against other types of families or against single-parent families. And we've got to get over that. We've got to stop being offended before people have finished their sentences. So you've recently appeared in this documentary that uh, Lawrence Fox has put together. Um, you know, I know actually you've worked on a number of a number of uh, video productions I've seen over the last few years. Anyhow, um, so tell me about that. It's probably the most important work that Lawrence Fox has done so far. It's a documentary called Groomed because 
for me, as I've been a teacher, an assistant head teacher, a school governor, a director of new uh, charter schools, and in all my time in education, the one thing that scares me the most is the lack of transparency. This is how I got into comment- commentating in the first place, because I was writing about the indoctrination that I was seeing in schools, and I was sticking my name to it. Um, because I thought that what is happening is wrong. People need to be aware. But parents are not aware what's going on in schools and what their kids are being taught. And they need to be. So this documentary is about opening people's eyes and exposing the truth. And I think if parents saw what was going on, they would be outraged. This, you know, I mentioned earlier that we're teaching younger and younger children about uh, sex education. That's inappropriate. We're also teaching them that actually they can decide their genders because they were assigned genders at birth but they might not be the genders that they feel like they belong to and it's up to them what they want to be and we're we're teaching them contested ideologies as if they are facts Uh, critical race theory is another one we're teaching young white kids that they are oppressors and they are either covertly or overtly racist it's something they cannot escape it's a sin that they cannot be forgiven for however we're also teaching young black kids that they are oppressed victims and the world is against them the country is institutionally racist and they've got hurdles that they'll never be able to overcome and when we do this we're dividing them based on their skin color when first of all that might not have been an issue to begin with because we live in quite a metropolitan society these days but also what we're saying to them is you know to the black kids why bother why work hard because what it doesn't matter what you do you're going to be held down anyway and we're saying to the white kids you guys are wicked you should you know you should feel bad about yourselves whether you've been racist or not whether you know you've been racist or not because you have been and you are and you should repent for the sins of your great 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 ancestors even though they may or may not be have been involved in anything nefarious and the thing that gets me in about all of this it all comes down to the transatlantic slave trade as if that was the only evil to ever occurred in history and slavery has been going out going on forever the Barbary slave trade, the, 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 you know, the Arabs have been trading blacks and whites for, for, for centuries. In fact, the Africans were, tr- were slave trading other Africans before the white man even got to Africa. Of course, none of this is discussed because it's the transatlantic slave trade that is most important. Forget the Egyptians, forget everyone else. But I don't know why we're obsessed with this one particular period in history. And we seem to think that the more we talk about it, the more we'll solve the problem. And the more we, we blame people today, for something that happened centuries ago, we'll get past it. Forgetting that the slave owners were the 1% of their day. It was the elite of their day. Just because you're white doesn't mean you have an ancestor that owns slaves. In fact, the probability is you didn't because most families aren't part of the 1%. Most families couldn't afford to have slaves. And so it's just a ridiculous suggestion that everyone white is somehow bad and everyone black is somehow good because people are fallen. People are individuals. We're all good. We're all bad. Uh, and that's, you know, we're a big melting pot of, of good and bad. And unless we acknowledge that and acknowledge that we're all individuals and we're not some big collective group that needs to take collective blame for things that we uh, were not involved in, uh, we, we can't move past it. You know, it strikes me as very interesting you to say, for you to say that this the transatlantic slave trade is there's this fixation on it, even in the UK. But I, my guess is, uh, you know, th- these ideologies, they actually come from the U.S., so it, it kind of makes sense that they would be central to to the whole story, but but it it seems to make even less sense, you know, based if we, looking at the arguments you just made, for it to be a UK thing somehow, or or anywhere else for that matter. It doesn't make any sense, Jan. So when I look at America, I think, okay, so you guys, you know, you had slaves. 
in your country. You had an apartheid system in some places. You know, you had segregation, um, it, water fountains, toilets, buses. Um, you know, you had a civil rights movement quite recent uh, to, to fight for equal rights. Um, you had the whole Planned Parenthood thing of you know eugenics set up to to depopulate black areas. You had Jim Crow laws. You've had a wicked history, and you're in a really good place now. You made a lot of progress. Acknowledging all those bads shows you how good things are now. But however, that that has meant that you've got a culture, a subculture, African American culture. We had none of that in Great Britain. You know, my when my grandparents came over from Jamaica. Uh, on my on my father's side, they were proud to be coming here as part of the Windrush generation because, first of all, they were part of the British Commonwealth of Nations in Jamaica. It's a former colony, but it wasn't something they were ashamed of. They were proud to come to the mother country. They, they, you know, the proud, they were proud to serve under Her Majesty the Queen, and they were welcomed. Of course, there was a lot of racism at the time, and we have made again we've made a lot of progress now from what it was like then. But generally speaking, they weren't you know they weren't taking they weren't taken over here as slaves. They, they chose to come over here. And we don't have that African-American culture. We don't have a black British culture in the same way because the Caribbean people that came over in the 1950s integrated so into, into, our, into society and communities. And so my father was born here. I was born here. I've got one black parent, one white parent, but I would say I'm entirely 100% British, 100% English. And this is my culture. This is my heritage. This is my nationality. This is my ethnicity. And I don't have, I wouldn't identify as black British because I, don't, I wouldn't know what that meant. I wouldn't know why my skin color is important. And it's not as divisive. But when we take on board these American politics, we are causing division in our society where it didn't exist to begin with. And I do, I do see that in a lot of, actually, in a lot of young black kids when they're taking on board, it comes from hip hop culture. It's that, you know, the, the jeans halfway down the backside, the hats on funny and, and using slang that doesn't make any sense in our language. Cause you know, well, I say our language, but you know, American English is quite different to British English, but we're taking your words, we're taking your culture, we're taking your politics. And that's quite sad because I mean, your, your culture is fine, but we had our own culture. And I think we should celebrate that. And it's, it's something that used to be considered good. But now the white middle class, the metropolitan liberal elites frown upon it because they're self-flagellating. And, and some of the ethnic, ethnically diverse communities also are looking for their own culture now because they're being told that actually they're not allowed to take on board the predominant culture, the normative culture, because it's not theirs. And this is the this is the division being brought on by the liberals who are saying, you know, no, that's not yours. You, you know, this is oppressive to you. You've got your own culture. It's like, no, this is all of our culture. We are all British. It's the thing that unites us that that brings us together. And by by you, what you're doing is you're you're stoking division and you're causing racism where it didn't exist to begin with, or or not in in the depths that it does now. You know, racial tensions have increased tenfold since the Black Lives Matter movement. A, a criminal was killed in a horrible way in a foreign land. Why is it affecting us? I mean, we can pray for him and we can pray for the police force and we can pray for America. Great. Uh, we can wish you well. But why are we taking on board your struggles? That's what I don't understand. It makes no sense in our context. So, Calvin, I want to touch on this one thing you said a little bit earlier which I, I think might not necessarily be completely clear to everyone. Uh, you mentioned Planned Parenthood, you mentioned depopulation of, of blacks. 
Um, can you just clarify for me what you're talking about here? Yeah, I think it's very interesting that the founder of Planned Parenthood was a eugenicist. And when we look at the results of the outcomes of what happened in the areas where Planned Parenthoods were placed, we see that the vast majority of abortions were black. That's an interesting demographic because it wasn't just the outcomes that were mostly poor people or mostly people in deprived areas or it wasn't necessarily down to class. The outcomes were that most of the people who are being serviced by these abortion centers were black. And this was set up and designed and implemented by a eugenicist who often referred to black people as Negroes and used you know, derogatory language when talking about attracting more Negroes by hiring more Negroes and this kind of thing. So it, it suggests to me that there was something nefarious going on there. Um, and this is part of a wider picture that in American culture, we've got, a, we've got this idea that somehow the left are the ones looking out for ethnic minorities and the right are somehow racist. We saw this a lot over Trump's campaign. You know, of course, Trump's racist and Biden is the one who's going to save black people because if you ain't, if you don't vote Biden, you ain't black. And I, I find that quite racist, actually. What I also found interesting is that a lot of the Vox Pops that I saw over the election were, were quite funny by, you know, shock jock right wing people that would would read quotes out and people would be like, oh, that's awful. That's racist. That must be Donald Trump. And they'd be like, no, that's actually Joe Biden. And then people would make excuses. Oh, yeah, that's because. It's, but if it's the other way around, they denounce Trump. It's fascinating. It's the ideology that, that trumps the, the actual racism. And, you know, we've seen this because we know that the Democrats were the party that were linked to the KKK. And we know that the Republicans were the party that fought for emancipation and fought for individual liberties. We know that parties on the center right generally see people as individuals and parties on the left generally see people as a collective. I think there's something inherently racist about this idea that you own a demographic and that demographic has to vote for you based on their immutable characteristics. Like the color of my skin does not affect the way that I think. And if people think that it does, I would suggest that they are racist. So my politics has nothing to do with the color of my skin. To be honest, I get my politics from my faith as much as I can uh, or from my nationhood uh, and from my community, from my family. Lots of different things have a part to play. My socioeconomic background, my class, my wealth, etc. But with the left, we've seen this with Joe Biden. If you if you don't vote Democrat, you ain't black, black. We've seen this in the UK with Jeremy Corbyn, who said we will unlock your potential as ethnic minorities. As an ethnic minority, I do not want anyone to unlock my potential. Not a metropolitan liberal elite, uh, white middle class person, whatever, anyone. I want to unlock my own potential. I want to work hard. I want to live in a meritocracy. I want to strive towards success and achieve things based on my merit, not someone else's handouts. This is conservatism, working for a hand up, not a handout. I don't want to be dependent on anyone because when you are dependent on someone else, they are your master. And that's what they want, really, truly. It's power. It's control. It's a way of getting their votes. Well, Calvin, absolutely fascinating. Um, any final thoughts as we finish up our talk today? When we look from, from Britain, when we look to America, we're always looking to, to copy from your culture and your ways. And I think there are so many great things about America. You, your, your First and Second Amendment stand out. Um, 
and your the way you fight for liberties in a way that I, I think we've forgotten over here. I, I wish we would start looking at the good things rather than bad things, but also vice versa. I love for America to take on board some of our subtleties and uh, our little our little eccentricities. Um, I think we, we share a lot in common, but there are, there's such a wide divide, and it feels to me that it, that's that that gap is growing uh, with the current um, president, unfortunately. Uh, so I hope that we can rebuild that uh, that strong union between our nations, and I hope we can continue to to look toward each other for for the best interests of both of us. Well, Calvin Robinson, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Pleasure was mine. Thank you. Thank you all for joining Calvin Robinson and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kalik. The Church of England did not respond to our request for comment. 